My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is the president and founder of Right Response Ministries and the author of the new book, Fight by Flight. Please welcome the fourth guest of Reformation May, Pastor Joel Webin. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the renaissance of men. You are the renaissance. In case you hadn't noticed, I'm not the sort of man to take moral outrages lying down. In fact, I can remember speaking up against wrongdoing when I was less than four years old. It's one of my oldest memories. So to be coming of age, so to speak, in an era such as this feels like a sort of blessing, like a hand in a glove. But knowing what to fight for is different from knowing how to fight. Knowing what to fight for is a blessing. Let's be clear, most men lack even that feeling, and I wish that more men had it. Also, like many kids I knew growing up, I was taught how to go along to get along. Keep your mouth shut and head down. Maybe the battle will pass you by. Think about your kids. Think about your future. Think about resumes, reputations, and family members. There's a life to lead, after all. Gotta be practical, right? Now, I comprehend that mindset and always have. I think we all do. But there comes a point in every man's life where he becomes aware that there's something more than pragmatism and practicality because there's this pesky thing called truth. And every man has to ask for himself, what am I willing to pay to live in alignment with truth? What am I willing to exchange to live in the light? What am I willing to sacrifice for something higher and greater than myself? Once a man begins to ask and answer questions like these correctly, he becomes dangerous to tyranny. But having a sword is different from knowing how to wield it. And to be frank, I haven't always been good at that. I've hurt people with words, and in doing so, I've hurt myself. Her blades can cut the people on either end of them. That is the nature of a blade, which is why we fear them while still feeling the call to battle. I believe these questions of righteous combat live in the hearts of many men, perhaps all of them, because again, I'm a fighter. And if you're listening to this podcast, man or woman, I reckon you are too. So if you've reached a point of knowing what to fight for, why to fight, and where, you know that one essential question follows, how? That is a harder question than it may seem, because once you've reached that point, the stakes become real. For example, if you don't know what to fight for, the thought to fight won't enter your mind. If you don't know why to fight, you won't show up to the battle in the first place. If you don't know where to fight, you'll probably get lost along the way. Only once you get to how to fight will the sword be drawn and real consequences become possible for good or for ill. That means training, and training means one thing, teachers. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Joel Webin, and he's the pastor at Covenant Bible Church outside Austin, Texas. But you probably know him better from his public-facing work on Twitter and YouTube 
as the founder and CEO of Right Response Ministries. The name says it all, Right Response. It begs its own question. What is the right response to theological error, to political controversy, and to the moral outrages of our day? In Pastor Joel's case, the answer is the truth spoken in love with bracing clarity, refined aesthetics, and a quiet but unmistakable edge. In other words, he's a fighter with a capital F, and for that reason, he's not everyone's cup of tea. But last I checked, it isn't tea time. In the wise words of Pastor James White, today the enemies of Christendom want two things, your bloodstream and your offspring. Tea, Earl Grey, hot, isn't going to cut it, literally, not when hospitals, teachers, bureaucrats, and even local governments want to cut in other ways, especially our kids. So maybe it's time to fight blade to blade, scalpel to sword of the spirit, the word of the state versus the word of God, which is why I'm both honored and grateful to have Pastor Joel on the podcast as part of Reformation May, because I regard him as a powerful combatant on the battlefield of ideas, one that all of us fighters, men and women, can learn something from about godly courage, confidence, and boldness. In our conversation, Joel and I discussed whether or not we lose down here. The only promise of postmillennialism, why God isn't arbitrary, hypocrisy, authenticity, authority, and the church, healthy self-doubt and healthy confidence, the plague of guilty Christian men, and finally, his new book, Fight by Flight. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Reformation May has been a wild success so far, exceeding all of my expectations. The past 30 days have smashed all my download records and month over month resemble a hockey stick. We do the work, God grants the increase, and for me that increase can be measured in your time and attention. So to God all the glory, and thank you. Please continue to leave five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, plus five-star ratings on Spotify, and share this episode with a friend. The Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee. Pastor Brandon Lansdowne has been hand-roasting beans for 14 years, And he, like me, wants you to fight not just with your words, but with your dollars to stop supporting woke coffee corporations that work against our values. Catch episode four of Will Reforms His Coffee running in the middle of this episode, where I let you know how my journey is going to reform my coffee experience from diner drip to pour over connoisseur with some surprising results. There's still time to sip along with me by going to reformationcoffee.com and using the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. And next week, I'll be interviewing Brandon himself and offering a full report. Finally, coming up on Saturday, June 3rd, I'll be hosting the second edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series, featuring a lineup of all-female speakers, discipling women and godly femininity, and the virtues of the Proverbs 31 woman. Featuring Annalise from Feminine Not Feminist, Dear Sister, Soli Oli, Bernadine Bluntley, Martine DeLuna, Issa Ryan, and the one and only Allison Armstrong. I've been in touch with all these ladies in preparation for the event, and they've been pouring their heart, soul, and spirit into their talks. It's going to be a special day. Go to renofmen.com conference to get tickets and use the code renofmen to take $5 off. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, a husband, father, fighter, and the founder of Right Response Ministries, Pastor Joel Webin. Pastor Joel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Absolutely. I'm honored. Well, before we begin, I just wanted to thank you for all the 
vocally outspoken content that you've been producing lately. It's been a great inspiration to me and so many of my listeners because we're dealing with so many serious issues as a nation, as Christians in the church, and to find men out front uh, swinging the sword in a righteous way, uh, a righteous and godly way, uh, truly inspires me to do the same. Praise God. So I wanted to start the conversation uh, with the subject of uh, loser theology, which is a phrase that oh, that was applied to something that John MacArthur said last week. We we lose down here, and with great respect to to John MacArthur, I know that I would disagree with him on that, or at least the idea that we can't be operating with that mindset that we do. We don't actually know how things turn out down here in quite the same way that I think he's certain of. So I want to start by by talking about that and and how that's shown up for you and your ministry and some of the things that you've been talking about. Yeah. So loser theology applied to John MacArthur by John MacArthur. Uh, I want to yeah. be respectful, but I also want to be fair. Um, yeah. You know, I, I like to pretend as some advocates of John MacArthur, which I would be one. I greatly respect John MacArthur. I've benefited Same. greatly from his his ministry, uh, but to pretend as though this was uh, some, you know, arbitrary, you know, or inappropriate pejorative assigned to John MacArthur's theology, I think is unfair. Uh, if you have a viral clip uh, that's not just, you know, a gotcha moment, like, hey, here's a moment in 53 years of public preaching where John MacArthur, you know, made a mistake. I, I have plenty of moments in my preaching over far less than 53 years of preaching where, you know, if you just, if you were able to record and clip out that, you know, 90 seconds, um, it would not be my brightest shining moment behind the pulpit. Um, but this is a clip that went viral, you know, so this, this is a clip though, that went viral, not because it was a gotcha moment by, you know, MacArthur's opponents. Um, this is something that has gone viral a couple times, most recently, on Twitter, the, the reason why it got so much steam and momentum, uh, where I ended up doing a response video to it, I had seen it in the past and I wasn't going to touch it, but Nathaniel Jolly, uh, who is a pastor and he's not officially in any capacity with G3, Josh Bice, Virgil Walker, Scott mm -hmm. Annual, uh, but he has written an article um, in regards to the Christian nationalist debate for G3. And so he's kind of in that camp. Not not on on the payroll, but um, but you know that he sure. would be in the MacArthur camp, the G three camp, and uh, and so he you know was kind of getting into trouble on Twitter. Uh, a lot of the Christian nationalist proponents were uh, ratioing him many times, as uh, the cool kids would say. I mean, just pretty much <laughs> every tweet he threw out, you know, he'd get fifty likes, and you know somebody would retweet it, you know, William Wolf or whoever, and get 250 likes. And so I, I think, you know, without pretending omniscience, this is speculation, I admit that. Um, so without knowing his heart, um, I do think that it's at least possible that he wanted to get behind a, a more respectable, credible, larger voice saying, hey, I'm not the only one who holds this position. Here is, ironically, the Protestant Pope himself, uh, which no Christian nationalist has actually appointed MacArthur, that, but guys who are very opposed to Christian nationalism, uh, nationalism treat MacArthur as though he is the Protestant Pope. Right. So here he is, the Protestant Pope himself, you know, saying we lose down here. So, so my point is, um, the most recent time that this clip went viral, it wasn't 
uh, a bunch of guys in opposition to MacArthur, you know, trying to have their gotcha moment or trying to, you know, right. uh, discredit his ministry. It was, it was actually guys who are against Christian nationalism and very much for John MacArthur using this clip as, you know, for all intents and purposes, as um, a good, positive moment, a good theology. Mm. Good, and in the clip, MacArthur, you know, um, he says, we lose down here. And, and he doesn't just, you know, say the word lose once. I mean, he, yeah. he, that's, he reiterates it and repeats it multiple times. We don't just waltz. Y'all, you thought you were a post-millennialist. You thought we were just going to waltz into the kingdom. No, 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 no. We lose down here. And, th- and then he even specifies yeah. further and says, I love this clarity. Don't you love it? Like, so he's, he's doubling down and saying, this was not misspoken. This was not you know, the, the antithesis of clarity where, where I made a mistake. No, this is me saying exactly, precisely what I mean to say. We lose. We lose down here. And then he doesn't say it in the same breath to give him Credence, but he does say, you know, you were a post-millennialist. And then later in the clip, not not in the same breath, but later in the clip, he says, uh, prosperity, gospel, garbage. And I can't help but think, I mean, it, 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 he, he's talking about, you know, winning in a tangible, earthly, temporal, physical sense and likening that to the prosperity gospel. Um, but earlier in the clip, and again, this isn't a 30-minute clip. All of this is happening in 90 seconds. And so just, mm. you know, a few moments earlier, less than a minute earlier, um, he's, you know, he is is um, dismissing post-millennial eschatology um, as something that is wrong. And then just, you know, you know, not directly after, but very shortly after that, saying, you know, uh, prosperity, gospel, garbage, um, and, and tying that in with, with, you know, tangible winning kind of results, positive results for Christians in the world in this temporal gospel age. And so I, I feel like it's fair, and I'm trying to be very fair and give details here. I'm not just straw manning, I'm steel manning it. Uh, mm-hmm. The clip is not uh, a mishap of John MacArthur that went viral because of opponents. Um, it's something that was put forward by John MacArthur fanboys and by opponents to Christian nationalism as a, uh, a good, solid, exegetical, theologically sound reasoning for why Christian nationalism and post-millennialism is wrong. In the clip, um, it is compare the post-millennial eschatology and having tangible victories with Christians in this temporal world is at least, at, 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 at best, the most charitable I could be, it is at least compared by MacArthur to um, what is uh, clearly a heresy, the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to publicly address that and say this is loser theology because the word lose is used by the guy advocating for it multiple times. It's also being likened to at least, if not outright, heresy. Uh, it's at least being compared, saying it's similar to the prosperity gospel heresy. And uh, I, yeah, I think that's unfair. I think it's unhelpful. And I think that this is in part, uh, this is why we are at our current impasse with our cultural insanity is because a lot of boomer Christians with boomer theology, uh, that is a very, very modern sentiment. If we look at 2,000 years of church history, it is a very modern way of thinking, this 
principled pluralism, classical liberalism, um, at least in some measure, Zionism, right? Israel becoming a sovereign state in the 40s, about 70, you know, 75 years ago. Um, that, that dispensationalism has really only been here for 150 years, Schofield, Darby. Um, and so all these, this dispensational, not historic pre-mill that could be tracked back to Justin Martyr, one of the earliest eschatological positions, but dispensational, albeit leaky dispensational, pre-millennialism, classical liberalism, we lose down here is a very modern sentiment. And it's at best, I won't say it's uh, hypocrisy, again, steel manning and being charitable. At best, I'll say it's not hypocritical, but it's at least ironic. It's ironic to stand be behind a microphone, technology that uh, ultimately only stems because of the innovations and technological discoveries and scientific discoveries of Christians. And to stand behind that microphone and a camera and preach the word of God, in this case, incorrectly, but to preach the word of God, have that piped out to millions of people on the other side of the planet. And, and so as, as you are preaching the gospel in a free nation established by Christian principles behind technological advancement so that you can reach people, millions of people in China with the word of God to say we lose down here. Again, if not hypocrisy, it is, um, a, it, it, it's the, the, the level of irony you could almost choke on. Mm, well said. Yeah. I, um, I have great respect for John MacArthur, for him as a teacher, for him as a leader. But the, the energy with which he said, we lose down here. It's like, there's something, it almost felt like as a, and, and you said very rightly, like young men are looking for something to believe in, something to fight for. They're watching, they're, we're watching America ebb away in front of us with, you know, drag queen story hour and so much worse. And to be telling young men that are looking for something to believe in, something to fight for that we lose I don't know how you attract young men to a church and how you continue having a church if you're telling young men come and join come and join a, a team of losers like not losers in terms of like less than humans because I think that's right. where the the term loser gets its its energy but like no like you if you lose a game you are the loser right, right? in the technical sense we're not saying you're a yes. loser like you're you're um objectively less intelligent or of less yeah. value or innate worth but yeah, exactly what you said. We're, we're, I'm using the term loser theology, um, not even to say that the advocates of it are losers themselves. I'm saying mm -hmm. loser theology, meaning in the very technical, practical sense, uh, your theology is that uh, we're not going to win games, we're going to lose games. Yeah. The theology of the defeated, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think when you, I think you did a, a sermon about it or a video about it, like, Young men are looking to, they're coming to the church now. I'm one of them. I'm coming into the Christian church being like, finally, after a long journey, I've found home. And, and I'm looking for something to fight for because I would like to have there to be a future for my children, for my grandchildren, for the generations. And to, to promise them a future of defeat, just let's get rid of the word loser, a future of defeat. I don't know that that's much of a, much of a promise. It, it seems, it seems, it seems ultimately defeatist in a, in a way that, I, I'm not clear what it's serving. Right. And it, it's also, um, aside from like, well, defeatist is bad and victory is good. Aside from that, 
we don't want to offer any promise, whether it be on the positive side of the aisle or right. the negative side of the aisle. Uh, we don't want to offer any promise that's a false promise. So even right. from the post-millennial um, perspective, um, I'm not telling my church, I'm not telling my children uh, that in our lifetimes, we're going to experience substantial, tangible, temporal victory. I believe that overall, that the trajectory is on the upward. Uh, but it could be, you know, some victories, maybe 500, 5,000 years out in the distance. My generation, my children's generation, I hope that it's victorious. I'm certainly going to fight for it to be victorious. Uh, but we could be entering into a, a, a very, very steep and long dip in, uh, in the progression of Christ's kingdom spreading throughout this world. Postmillennialism is not a perfect, steady, ever, you know, perpetual, ever increasing incline. Um, there are, just like the stock market, there are dips and spikes along the way. And so um, I think to, to promise, and, and that's what's ironic, again, using, and that's the charitable word. I, I won't say hypocritical because that imputes motives, intent. And so, you know, why, uh, why attribute malice uh, yeah. to what can easily be explained by stupidity? Um, so stupidity being the <laughs> charitable term, right? Yes. I'd, I'd much rather call someone <laughs> stupid than evil. And so, Fair. Um, you know, that's, that's kindness. So all that being said is um, even from the dispensational premillennial eschatology, even from that standpoint, uh, you still have to account for the last 2,000 years of church history and that there are at least time periods, and I would argue it's the bulk of the last 2,000 years, but even if it's the minority report, you would still have to account um, for positive um, positive developments within the tangible world, uh, whether it be through laws becoming more just. I mean, you, you look 2,000 years ago, and it's not just that we have more Christians, right? Well, we, we also have a much greater population overall, but we don't just have more Christians. We have a higher percentage of Christians. We also have a higher percentage of Christians throughout every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not just mm -hmm. that, but the gospel going forward and having more regenerate hearts has had a tangible impact in government in science, in medicine, in academia, in art. So we have more just laws. Like when would you rather your children be alive? Would you rather them be alive in 500 BC in Assyria? Or would you, would you rather, you know, uh, have your children be alive in, in 2023, even with Drag Queen Story Hour? Um, and so you look at the last 2,000 years, uh, you, at every metric, not just the metric of, of you know, the number and percentage of Christians increasing, but you can look at lifespans. They have objectively increased. You can look at global hunger. It has gone down. You can look at disease, infection. It has gone down. You can look at the, just the global poverty line, right? Uh, that that um, the, the, the overall quality of life and not just the GOP, but but the global um, uh, economy and and level of wealth shared by by every you know every nation around the world is better. Um, every every one of these metrics has improved. Um, now again, I think we're on a decline right now. I think that Christendom is like a ship going out to sea. It's leaving the dock because of our rebellion. God will not be mocked and man will reap what he sows uh, as Western civilization has largely chosen to rebel against God and against his commands. 
then yeah, we're going to reap the whirlwind. And I think that we're just now experiencing the very beginnings of that. But my point is in 2000 years of church history, even the pre-mill guy has to, has to be able to be honest and account for um, wins. It's not just 2000 years of perpetual losing. So the post-mill guy, we can't say, oh, it's 2000 years of a per- perfect incline without any dips. Well, in the same way though, you, the pre-mill guy can't say it's a perfect decline that everything has gotten progressively worse. Every day is a little bit worse than the day before. Uh, You can't do that and then historically account for England, historically account for America, uh, historically account for King Alfred and and account for um, the British Empire in India. Yeah, there are bugs along the way, but there are some serious features, right? Women are no longer buried alive with their dead husbands, right? So there's all these positive, and, and not just in the 17th dimension, not just spiritual, but there are positive, tangible, literal, physical, temporal benefits to the gospel going forward. And we don't know. We don't know. The post-mill guy doesn't know if it's going to be a dip for the next 70 years for his children and their their generation. And even the Dispy pre-mill guy does not know. He doesn't know if it's going to be, you know, overall trajectory being down, but with a few spikes along the way. Well, what if the next 70 years is a spike? We've had them before. We can have them again. There's, there's nothing um, biblical that would be a, a definitive that says that, that the next 70 years can't be good or that the next 70 years can't be bad. Um, so it's, it's not only is it a promise that young men don't uh, necessarily respond to well because uh, it's promising uh, defeat rather than promising victory. Uh, my biggest prom- uh, problem with it is that the promise, not that the promise is negative instead of positive, uh, but that the promise is a promise that cannot be made. Mm. It can't be made. I can't make it in the positive direction. I can make it for uh, the, the entirety of the gospel age. I can do exegesis from a post-mill uh, perspective and say that overall, it's going to be trending up. I can make that exegetical argument. And in the Dispy pre-mill guy's uh, defense, he reading the Bible differently than I would, he can, exe- I would disagree with his exegesis, but he can exegetically make his argument that over the entirety of the gospel age, the trend will be negative, that it will be down. But neither of us uh, can speak to the next 70, a specific time period in a specific place. In this country, for these next decades, for our children in this particular generation, in this particular place, it will be good or it will be bad. Neither of us can do that. So it's not just a negative promise. It's a false promise. I think that's an excellent distinction. Thank you for that. And, and uh, because, because I feel that no one can promise anything. The future is not promised. And, uh, and, I, and I, think, I think there's even something that's empowering about that. It's like, look, I can't promise you a future, but I can put the sword of the spirit in your hand and we can go fight for something. And I think that rouses people to action. Look, we might not win, but at least we have something to fight for because we're being fought against. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the part that War has been declared on Christian America, a yeah. negative world, right? That's actually happening. So what are we going to do in response? Are we just going to say, well, well, we, we lose down here. I promise you we lose down here. Okay, bye. Or we say, well, look, I can't promise you anything, but I can, uh, but I can, I can point you in the direction of the fight and arm you to fight for something that's good and true and, and noble and godly. And I, I think that's the inspiring aspect, even not making a promise, because a false promise is worse than no promise at all. Right. I agree. So 
as you're as you're leading, so obviously you have your public facing ministry through YouTube um, and and podcasts. Now, as you're leading your flock in Texas, how is this showing up in your church? You must be seeing signs of this, you know, coming in day to day and pastoral ministry of, of people looking for something um, of the sort of things that you're talking about. How is it showing up in people's lives? Yeah. Um, well, practically, in terms of living out both the law and gospel, um, we have um, you know, the practical kind of touch points would be uh, one, um, we have a high esteeming of marriage. Um, so the idea that, uh, that we should just, you know, uh, postpone marriage to your 30s, you know, or 40s is um, foreign for our church culture. Uh, we have demonized that as not being in step with uh, the biblical norm. So marriage is esteemed. Children are esteemed. So if you visit Covenant Bible on a Sunday morning, um, the things that you would notice is uh, you would notice lots of children. You would notice family integrated worship. We don't ship the children off into a separate room. Um, and that stems from our, our view of children, a positive view of children. Let the children come to me, uh, but it also stems from our ecclesiology. Uh, if the children are in a separate room, um, it's important to note that those who have you know children's ministries at their church, not supplemental on a Wednesday night youth group, but on the Lord's day, during the Lord's day, you know, gathering of the saints for worship, those who would send the children into another room, uh, ultimately what, what we have to acknowledge is that just from an ecclesiology standpoint, uh, the parents are not bringing their children to church because we have to answer the question. And I thought that we, you know, handled this throughout COVID. COVID was helpful for, you know, ironing out ecclesiology. Uh, but apparently a lot of people still haven't learned the lessons. But um, the church, there's a specific biblical criteria for what constitutes church. The church is not just the people of God, the called out ones, the saints who are the church in terms of identity all week long. Uh, but church is not just who. That is true. There's a biblical element of the church answering the question who. Uh, but church is also a what. It's not just a who, but it's a what. Uh, the church is an assembly. It is a gathering, and it's a gathering on the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath, the day that Christ Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and it's a gathering of all the saints for a specific purpose. The administration, the administering of the ordinary means of grace, that's publicly preaching the word, publicly praying the word, publicly singing the word and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and then publicly seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G, seeing the word, and the only two images prescribed for us in Scripture, which would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so if children are going to a separate room uh, where there is not preaching, where there is not the supper, where there is not, um, if they're being precluded from all these things, uh, then we must acknowledge that the children are simply not going to church. We're not just bifurcating the church. Uh, we're saying church is here and children they go to something that it all together is, is separate from church. Um, and then we're shocked when our children grow up and apostatize. Um, they mm -hmm. no longer go to church. The irony is, um, it's like, well, I'm shocked that my adult children don't go to church. Well, you didn't bring them to church when they were under your own roof. Why are you shocked that your children are doing precisely what you taught them to? You taught them from zero to 12 years old in some cases, 
um, you taught them that uh, that church is not for them, and they're just keeping with the lessons that you discipled them in, boomer parent, uh, that church is not for them. So what are the tangible effects of, of uh, uh, an eschatology of hope and victory, um, a masculine uh, theology of, of engaging culture, engaging the world around us, a Kyperian, every square inch, all of Christ for all of life, um, it's palpable even just on Sunday morning by virtue of there being a lot of children, families, ideally, they, they're not childless. They don't just have one or two children. Sure, there are exceptions, but we don't make the footnote, the headline, the exception is not the norm. So right. by and large, at Covenant Bible Church in Georgetown, Texas, we're going to have uh, kids. Families have a lot of kids. The kids are with us in the worship, uh, family-integrated worship. And before and after the service, you have uh, women, you know, talking and, and discussing with one another um, things that primarily pertain to being keepers at home. They're talking about recipes. They're talking about parenting. They're talking about school and classical education. Our church right now, many members of the church are working together. I'm sitting as a board member on this project, but for you know, fall 2024, our goal is to launch St. George uh, Classical school in Georgetown, uh, Texas. And so working towards the school, uh, the men, many of them are running for local office uh, in the political realm. And so we've got guys running for city council. We've got guys who are um, sitting in political office already. And, uh, and you know, we've got guys who many abolitionists are in our church. And so they're working on bills and submitting bills in different counties throughout Texas uh, for equal protection for the unborn, equal penalties. Therefore, we can argue that it's actually equal protection. Therefore, we can argue that it's actually equal value. You can't say that the unborn life has equal value to the born life if there's not equal protection, and there is not equal protection if there's not equal penalties. If we're saying that it's open season for murder for one particular type of person, namely the person who has not yet been born. So uh, from abolitionism to having lots of children, to family integrated worship, to men running for local office, to women talking about classical education, to starting a classical school in all these ways, and a whole host of other examples I could provide. Uh, you see people who um, are engaging and engaging one, first and foremost, regardless of, of what we think the outcome will be, we're engaging first and foremost because we actually believe we've been called to do so. We're engaging because um, we first and foremost want to simply be obedient. But secondarily, um, there's also a, a very hopeful um, atmosphere at Covenant Bible Church. Not only are we um, convicted and convinced that this is obedience, applying all of Christ to all of life, but we also um, believe that, uh, that God is not capricious. See, I think that that's part of the problem is that, you know, again, some of our pre-mill brothers and sisters, they, they would agree with us in terms of, well, regardless of the outcome, uh, we just, you know, it doesn't matter what the outcome is. Uh, we want to be obedient, right? So obedience is the chief motive uh, for doing these things that God has commanded us to do. Um, but it's just like complementarianism. It's really, I think, it, you know, it has... It doesn't stem from this directly, but it has some similarities with antinomianism. Um, all these things, uh, part of what they do is they subtly assert uh, that God's law and commands are arbitrary. They, they assert mm. um, 
and again, I don't think it, albeit unintentionally, they assert that the character and nature of God is capricious, um, meaning that, that God is commanding something um, that, that cannot actually be done. He's commanding something, like if somebody's a big environmental, you know, um, it's fine to steward the environment, but if they're, you know, liberal and progressive and think, you know, that uh, the problem right now is that, you know, the world is overpopulated and yet they claim to be a Christian. Well, that, that, that does, they may not have connected the dots um, consciously, but, but what, what that does essentially is it says when, you know, that when God commanded mankind to be fruitful, multiply, God was actually commanding us to do precisely what would end in our own demise. That makes God capricious, right? Or, or if your position is, for instance, it's been said very recently um, in the public sphere that, you know, that a woman could preach, but she's just not allowed to. Well, again, that's, that's taking role and duty and severing it from design. So now it's male and female roles he assigned them instead of male and female roles or natures, male and female natures he designed them. So it's no longer male and female he made them, he designed them. It's just male and female uh, roles he assigned them. Role becomes arbitrary. It becomes divorced from design, right? So it's like, well, God, you know, is, uh, he, God has ordained that fish should swim and birds should fly. And that's just the way he wants it. It's like, well, really, are, are you sure that the, the command of God, his ordinance for a bird to fly has nothing to do with the fact that the bird has been designed with feathers, wings, and a hollow bone structure and that fish are called by God. Yes, indeed, called by God to glorify him through swimming. But that has nothing to do with the fact that they have fins and gills and scales. And so too, like with women, Preaching, um, is it that a woman, a woman could preach, but she's just not allowed to? And if so, if it's something that she can do in her nature, her nature actually allows for it, but God's commands disallow from it, um, then, then that, that does begin to subtly paint the character of God as, as being capricious. So whether it's, you know, it, you know and that's, that's the heart of antinomianism. I'm not saying there's a direct correlation, but uh, lawlessness usually stems. My point is that lawlessness usually stems from um, from taking the laws of God and severing them from the purposes of God. And so, as it goes back to our original, you know, discussion about eschatology, um, yes. If, if the question is, should it be sufficient merely the commands of God and the motive of Christians to want to be faithful and obedient, is that sufficient? Yes. But the moment that you that you sever the commands of God from the intentions of God, the purposes of God, uh, you begin to subtly insert in the minds of God's people that God has a capricious and arbitrary nature. So to say, well, God wants us to be faithful. He wants us to engage. He wants us to fight. But he has ordained that all these attempts will be, in the final analysis, unsuccessful. Then then again, what I'm saying is that at best, you could still see certain commandments and still be faithful to obey. But even in a best case scenario, you will at least have the sneaking suspicion that God's being a little bit cruel. I mean, that was the, that was the temptation of the serpent in the garden, right? Hath God really said, God's holding out on you, right? Instead of que- questioning God's intentions, really. Right. And that's, not, that's Gnosticism. That's Gnosticism mm-hmm. is that, is that you know, Gnosticism tells the story that um, that Yah, that the God that we know as Yahweh, this is Gnosticism's narrative, is put us in prison, and Lucifer is here to liberate us from a capricious God. Uh, that's right. essentially what you're describing. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in your in your ministry at your church, are you finding people coming to you that are have that that need that are carrying these ideas, and you're kind of having to educate them in actual biblical teachings now? No, um, well, no. Praise God for that. Um, and and that's mainly because of my public ministry. Mm-hmm. So, um, if I was only a local pastor, I am first and foremost a church man, and so that that is. Um, uh, my priority, um, but I do have a, a public-facing ministry with you know podcasting and YouTube and conferences and, and mm-hmm. doing a little bit of writing now. And so, um, so right. most because of that, most of the people who come to our church, if not all of them, uh, they're coming because they found us online. So they, you know, they've been listening to the podcast for a while. Like we have a couple families from Canada, you know, who they 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 didn't just you know. Um, accidentally moved to Georgetown, Texas. They, you know, they wanted to get out of Canada regardless. Um, and, and so then they were determining where in the United States to settle. And they were looking for uh, churches that had the kind of doctrine that we have, you know, and so we were on a very short list, you know, of, you know, maybe Apologia or maybe, you know, uh, some of, you know, the guys up in Ogden, Utah, uh, who mm-hmm good friends of mine or, or, you know, or the, um, you know, the Moscow crew, you know, and so, and so for whatever reason, Texas, you know, fit better or particular nuances of my doctrine fit better. Or the fact that I'm a Baptist, you know, or maybe that narrowed down the search. Um, but to answer your question, um, virtually everyone that I'm aware of the churches, we started April, 2021. So it's been just a little over two years now. We've gone from 20 to about 200. And mm. so very quick growth, but pretty much, you know, everybody who's come has come not despite, you know, but precisely because of my forward facing ministry. Therefore, um, they're um, already, they're walking in the door already prepped and and aware of my post-millennial eschatology, the vision and the heart and the ethos of the church. And that's why they're here. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of Will Reforms His Coffee, sponsored by Reformation Coffee. I've been reforming my coffee experience from drip coffee devotee to pour-over evangelist. In episode one, I discussed the tools needed to make a pour-over cup. In episode two, I talked about the process. Last week, in episode three, I gave it the old college try and found out I was overqualified. But today, after a week of practice, I'm ready to give a report. I've watched additional YouTube videos, including of World Barista Championships, which apparently are a thing. I've also been wondering if I need to have a bigger mustache or suspenders if I truly want to get into coffee, because that's what all the guys on YouTube have. And if that's the case, forget it. So before I get pulled over by the coffee police, I've brewed about a dozen cups, and I think I can confidently offer a preliminary verdict. Guys, I, I kind of like it. Thank you, thank you. Oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. Oh, thank you so much. But here's the best part. I like it for more than just the taste of the coffee. It's the process I've come to enjoy. The grinding the beans, the measuring, the weighing, the pouring, the timer, and the drip, drip, drip into the carafe. The idea that I made this cup for myself and I get to enjoy it. I didn't just dump a bunch of hot water on some grounds and let physics do their thing. I participated. And though it only takes five or so minutes, it's relaxing. And I look forward to the little ritual that I'm also enjoying getting better at. That part surprised me the most. It's about the journey, not the destination, right? Even if the destination is my morning cup of coffee. And speaking of destinations, we're not quite there yet. 
We still have one step left to go, discovering whether I can refine more than my skills, but also my coffee palate. Because I've got a brand of coffee worth doing it for, Reformation Coffee. The company's founder and head roaster, Pastor Brandon Lansdowne, has been honing his craft for 14 years, preparing for a moment like this, where he can be an example to Christian men of what passion, dedication, and hard work can mean towards building godly prosperity for a family and the kingdom. His coffee is the reason I went on this journey in the first place, and when we talk next week, I'm hoping to be able to have an intelligent conversation on what I've learned about coffee. If you want to sip along with us, there's still time, because Brandon roasts your coffee on demand and ships within just 72 hours of roasting. So go to reformationcoffee.com right now and enter the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. And you can drink Reformation Coffee along with us while we talk. Suspenders are optional. Once again, go to reformationcoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. And see you next week for the exciting conclusion of both Reformation May and Will Reforms' his coffee. And now, back to the show. Praise God for that. I also go to Apologia. And uh, and one of the things I like most about listening to your sermons, because I experience them at Apologia, is you can hear the children. The yeah. microphone is picking up the sounds of, of the children, and, and that creates such a different such a different feeling to know that, like, no, this, these are the things that we believe, and the, these are the things that we live. Amen. So, um, one of the questions uh, that I've really I've really appreciated that you've been addressing, and I had Eric Kahn on a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about this, was the subject of holding women accountable for sin. Now that seems to be, I've heard from multiple sources and in, in private conversations that this is a touchy subject within the church, but it seems to me in the circles that I run in that this is something that women are kind of looking for. They're looking for an environment of structure where they're held accountable like the, like the men are. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, because I think that's, that's a frontier of the Christian conversation is, is riding that ship. Right. Yeah, there's uh, a lot with that. I think, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a lot, but you know, I'll just mention a few things. This is not exhaustive by any stretch. Um, but again, you know, I, I, it goes back to the arbitrary or capricious kind of theme. Um, I, I think that a lot of people, um, believe in this, this sentiment has seeped into the church. They believe that, um, the, the source, the ultimate source for, um, being able to speak on a particular subject authoritatively. They believe that the source of authority is experience um, rather than, you know, sola scriptura, uh, rather than the word of God. And so if uh, the source of credibility and authority, if what earns you the right to be able to instruct or in the case of somebody being wrong, correct or rebuke is experience, then yeah men are not able to ever offer any instruction or correction to women. But if the source of authority is not uh, the individual person, the messenger, but the infallible, universally true message, the word of God itself, um, then the person who's delivering the message is of no consequence. Right? That the preacher in the pulpit uh, is not sharing, he's not a opining. He's not thinking. He's not feeling. He's heralding. Let the one who speaks, 1 Peter 4, 11, let the one who speaks do so as though he were heralding the very oracles 
of God. Um, I think, you know, we, we've embraced, there's so many things here, but we've embraced uh, as, as an incredibly high virtue, um, as a source of authority experience. Another is that we have embraced as a very high virtue, authenticity. I think that, um, that millennials especially, right? I picked on the boomers, so I'll pick on millennials. I'm an old <laughs> millennial. around. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's plenty of critiques to, for all generations. Um, but millennials, I think especially, um, have a certain aversion. Gen X, I would include in this as well, but a certain aversion to what they saw, and they could, could be wrong about this, but what they perceived as um, their, you know, their elders being disingenuous, um, being hypocritical, uh, being one way in public, but another in private. And so um, I think people have a very high sensitivity towards mm-hmm. hypocrisy. And so in order, to, in order to avoid the pitfall of hypocrisy, um, we have determined that the solution to hypocrisy is, um, is just uh, raw, uh, perpetual, constant um, honesty. Um, and meaning that, uh, that in order to not be hypocritical, basically, I'm not going to say anything unless I can first do it in my own life. Um, but that's not the call of the preacher, um, right? There, there are qualifications, right? So, so it's not to say that the preacher can just be anyone. There are biblical qualifications for the preacher, for an elder in God's church. Um, and so he must be above reproach. He's got to have a certain minimum bar of character. Uh, but sinlessness is not one of the qualifications. And yet, uh, the duty of that elder is to teach the whole counsel of God. So how, how can you teach with authority as one, and remember, the one who speaks should be uh, speaking as though he's heralding the very oracles of God. So speaking with authority, um, speaking universal truths that would have been true whether the preacher had ever been born or not. How, how can a, a fallible, sinful man step into the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, um, and, and to preach things that he himself inevitably um, has not lived up to, at least not perfectly. Um, I, I think that that's just, that's something that's been lost, that category. Um, so in order to avoid accusations of hypocrisy, what we've done instead um, is, is we've just simply opted for, well, anything that uh, that I haven't lived up to, or even that, that men in general, you know, haven't lived up to. If, if men in general have been apathetic, then I won't preach about hard work. If men in general have been abusive, then I won't preach about male headship. If, you know, and, and so, and, and that's kind of been, you know, that's been just, you know, par for the course where I'd argue the last 50 years when it comes to preaching and pulpits in America. And so, um, so if experience, not scripture, is the source of authority, right? And I don't have the experience of being a woman. Um, and if hypocrisy is the greatest fear rather than theological inaccuracy, untruthfulness, hypocrisy should be something that we're concerned about, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we should be more concerned about lying. Lying in hypocrisy is a form of, it's lying indeed. But I see, I see the, the shortest way I could put it is I think that in order to reconcile uh, lying lives, we've just decided to have, you know, lying sermons. 
So, so we've decided we'll lie in our speech um, in order to avoid lying in our lives, where the solution is neither. The solution isn't, um, I'm living a lie, therefore, you know, I'll, I'll speak lies. Um, you know, the, the solution is just to get into the pulpit and to say that the pulpit has nothing to do with me. Right? Yes, live a righteous life as much as you can. Be above reproach and all those. But know that you're still a sinner. And, and as a pastor, I'm going to be preaching a multitude of things that I have not yet mastered. I, ha- I haven't. And that doesn't mean I'm disqualified from ministry because, again, there, there's a wide chasm between above reproach and the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. And yet, guys in between at various levels of sanctification we're meeting the, the minimum biblical bottom line as a qualification for an elder and yet are still living in this life and sin still res- resides within the members of our flesh and we have not yet seen him as he is and therefore sinless. As, like, so, so there's a lot of gap in between and, and yet these men who are not yet sinless but are above reproach are called to preach the very things with and not just saying, I feel or I think they're, they're supposed to preach with confidence and authority as though they're heralding the very oracles of God, the very same things that they themselves have not yet mastered. Um, I, I see that as just, that's an inescapable reality of preaching. Um, and it doesn't, um, the solution to not being a hypocrite is, is not to say, well, I just won't speak about these things. The solution to not being a hypocrite is to speak about these things knowing that you're failing and ask God for more grace through repentance and through faith um, to, to be further sanctified and, and get your act together. That's, that's the solution. But I think what people have opted for, you know, especially millennials, is I'll never be like you know, my, my parents. I'll never be like the older generation that, that said things, but I saw them at home doing another. Um, so then what happened is that just, you know, um, we just... We just don't preach anymore. Um, it, what happened in avoiding hypocrisy, it's not like millennials um, are living these clean, spotless lives. Um, instead, what, what, they, what they've opted for is, I won't be hypocritical like my parents' generation, saying one thing, doing another. So what, I, what I'll do is uh, do better. No, I'll just say less. Do better or say less. We've opted for saying less. So we don't correct women. We don't... We don't talk about, you know, men being masculine, hard work. We don't talk, you know, we don't talk about men uh, being pure and, and mortifying, you know, sin of lust and pornography by grace alone, like, uh, because we know that men haven't done it. Uh, and, and so we just won't say it. And so instead of, those are your two options. You can, in your life, you can rise to the occasion or in your speech, you can just lower the bar. We've opted for the second. Wow. That, that answers a number of questions that I've really been struggling with because I can see it. I can, I can see that we've constrained, because that's the big question that I run into with so many men. Where are the churches that are talking about these things related to masculinity, femininity, family, male headship, Christian nationalism in a way? Why are these pastors not talking about it? Why is the subject not being shouted from the pulpits? And you just, I think you just put a pin on it in a way that I hadn't considered before it's like we've reduced the we've reduced the scope of dialogue to avoid accusations of hypocrisy, and yes. that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so so um, so how do how do men navigate that? Like like for for men listening, they're like they can see that because I can see that now in so many places uh, in, in my life. Like how do we navigate that? In fact, I get accusations all the time of of uh, of, of being a grifter or whatever. It's like I'm not married, I don't have kids, but I can look in the Bible and I can say what this book says. 
about marriage and family and fatherhood, and it's not my authority, but God's authority. So how do men and how do men in other circumstances where they feel like they can't speak on something because maybe they have lived slightly out of alignment or because they are sinners, how do men navigate that? Because I feel like that's been really culturally ingrained in us to be sensitive to that charge of hypocrisy, especially because many large church leaders have been, you know, pretty severely hypocritical. How do we go forward with this knowledge now? Right. Um, Well, I think that when it, you know, the pulpit is different than Mm. every other context of life. So if it's, if we're talking about outside of the realm of of preaching from a pulpit to the church of God on the Lord's day, in every other context, social media, Twitter, podcasting, every other context, what I would encourage men to do because, um, because of the command of first Peter four eleven, I don't think applies. Um, I, I, I don't think that, um, that, that the podcaster, um, has to always be speaking, um, as, as the preacher would in the pulpit. Right. Um, it's a different context. It's a different format. And so I think it does allow uh, a forum like this, what you and I are utilizing right now, does allow for um, a greater degree of, of um, authenticity, vulnerability. Um, the, the, the speaker in this context, uh, what he can do is he can say, thus saith the Lord, and here's the source of authority, not my experience, but the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the next breath, he can say, and here's how I've personally failed. Now, that said, um, I think a lot of people, and this is part of how preaching got watered down in the last few decades, um, people took that, that strategy of, I'm going to preach the truth, but then also simultaneously admit how I fail to live up to it. That is, not only is that permissible, I would say it's commendable and and perhaps even in many contexts um, expected. but not in the context of preaching. And what happened was, I think, you know, young people, we applied that strategy of tell the truth, but then also tell the truth about your failure to live up to that truth. So tell the universal truth from God's word, but also share the truth of how you personally have failed. And we applied that to the pulpit. And then pulpit became more about the man instead of the message. It became more about the individual all of a sudden you have more personal examples, you have more anecdotes, you have more illustrations, you have, you know, well, I think, and I, you know, and I've struggled with and it, and it's just, and, and it's funny because all of that, you know, is often categorized in terms of the, the public optic, the perception. It's often categorized under the banner of humility. Ironically, um, God would categorize it, I think, under the banner of pride. Uh, because at the end of the day, in an objective sense, even though you may be vulnerably sharing negative things about your own past and your own failures, uh, what you are certainly doing is you're saying, I, me, my, in a Lord's Day sermon, over and over and over and over. Instead of, instead of here's the text, here's God's word, here's his gospel, here's his law, um, you look at old preachers. Here's just one practical example. You look at, and, and when I say old preachers, I mean pretty much every preacher for 2,000 years until 15 minutes ago, right? Hmm. So guys who aren't even that old, like Spurgeon is not, it's not that long ago. Dr. Martin yeah. Lloyd-Jones, even more recent. So I'm talking about just just a generation or two before us. You look at their sermons, you read their manuscripts. Uh, they don't say we, they say you. They don't mm. say us. They say 
you. They don't say are, they say your, right? That you look at some of these manuscripts and Spurgeon even, you know, explicitly addressed this subject and said, yeah, it's not, um, the preacher is not supposed to be including himself. Of course, the scripture applies to him as a man, but when he steps into the pulpit, right? One of the prayers that Spurgeon and other guys would pray as they were walking into the pulpit was have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. But then when they step into the pulpit, they become a lion. See, one of the things that people think, I've even heard guys say this, they've said that, um, that, that a pastor in the pulpit should look no different uh, than he does with his children on the living room floor as he's playing with them in the evening. Um, or that his, you know, his young children, toddlers, two and three years old, should be able to recognize their father when he's preaching and say, that's, that's my dad, and he looks exactly the same as he does at home. And I would just completely reject that principle. I think that that's absolutely wrong. Um, I don't think that preaching is casually walking, pacing back and forth between two ferns. I don't think that preaching is meant to be sitting on a stool at a high top table with a flower arrangement, warm cup of coffee, and a few Bible verses pulled up on your iPad. Preaching is not casual. It's not vulnerable. It's not it, because it's not about you. That's why it's not about the preacher. So it's not the place to be sharing about your life, including even your past failures that may be deemed by the audience as being uh, an act of humility, but actually it's really a sign of pride. It's, it's detracting and distracting from God and his word and making it man-centered. It's making it you-focused. So all that being said, to answer your question, what I would say is that in virtually every single context but Lord's Day preaching, I think that the solution to the charge of hypocrisy is to say, thus saith the Lord, and to also include the whole story of how we personally have failed to live up to these things. But that's not what the pastor is supposed to do. And when a pastor gets up in the pulpit and says hard truths from God's word without um, any example about how he personally has failed to live up to these truths, we as Christians theologically need to have a category for that that is not hypocrisy. We need to be, and the reason why we, we, have no, we, we have no recollection for a guy saying, thus saith the Lord, without admitting his own failures in the Lord's day preaching, the, the fact that we can't reconcile that as anything but hypocrisy just shows us how not only do we have a wrong view of the nature of men and the nature of women, we also have a very, very misunderstood, mismanaged view of the nature of preaching. We think that preaching is sharing. We, we, you know, I, I actually tweeted this just today um, in regards to, you know, a woman should not preach because a woman cannot preach. One of the things that I said is if preaching is, is merely um, likened to a mother in a kitchen uh, serving dinner to hungry children, then why can't a woman do it? It's very much in line with her nature to be a, a, a nurturer in the way that God has designed her, right? I mean, w- what are... What is the church but the children of God, right? There's, a, there's sheep, right? And, and what is preaching if not giving the bread of life, nourishment, food, a meal? Well, who's good at cooking meals and serving it to hungry children? Women. Women are great at that. So why can't women preach? Well, because preaching can never be less than spiritual nourishment to God's spiritual people. But oh, how preaching is more. Preaching can be likened in some sense to a mother 
serving dinner to her children. But it can also be likened to William Wallace riding down the front line, slamming his sword into the spears and swords of his comrades and calling them into war. Preaching is war. It's rallying, it's not just feeding the hungry, but it's also charging soldiers into battle. And that is not just something that a woman's not allowed to do. It's something that a woman literally cannot do. A woman riding down on her horse, holding a sword, slamming that sword into the spears of men, rallying them into battle, what what that accomplishes is all the men turning around and running home. And I understand that we have Marvel movies and we have Hollywood and all this thing with strong female superhero type characters. But in the real world, women do not inspire men to battle. They don't. And so if preaching is merely feeding hungry spiritual children, sure. And I wouldn't say that preaching is less than that. I think that is an aspect of preaching. But I think that's a narrow and truncated view of preaching if we think it's the exclusive purpose of preaching. It is to feed the hungry, but it's also to inspire and rally warriors to battle. And that is something not only that men are exclusively allowed to do, but that men by their design are exclusively capable of doing. Man, do you have a couple more minutes to kick this soccer ball around for a second? Sure. So one of the things I've observed about Christianity is that it gives men a healthy self-doubt. I think there's a component of like, be certain about your motivations, be certain about your speech, be certain about your actions, Keep, take every thought captive, be, be critical of yourself. And so there's a component of healthy self-doubt. And what seems really difficult to build on top of that is what you're describing, which is a healthy self-confidence. So how can men listening know that, okay, we've grown up in a culture that has, uh, that has cultivated men to have healthy and unhealthy self-doubt? But what you're talking about, this kind of Aslan energy, this warrior energy, this Christian warrior energy, that requires a degree of healthy self-confidence. So how can a man navigating his way through these two things, what advice would you give him to speaking and preaching the word of God, maybe not from the pulpit, but in his life, in his community, in his family, in his home, with his friends? What advice would you give men that are seeking that healthy self-confidence? Great question. We have cowardly men because we have guilty men. I think that cowardice stems from guilt. So the answer of how can a man have a greater sense of courage and confidence? Well, the answer to that for sinners, because I don't know of any man that's not a sinner, right? There's really only two solutions. A man can have confidence by being sinless, having no foothold, no point of weakness, no vulnerable place. Or, because that's not possible, So long as we're in this life, sin still resides within the members of our flesh. Sinless perfectionism is not um, a biblical doctrine. So it's either be perfect and sinless so that you might be confident, or the only alternative is the gospel of free grace. Uh, that, That men are not confident because they know that they're guilty. Uh, I think we have a lot of cowardly men because we have a lot of guilty men. And uh, the solution to guilt is grace. Uh, Men who actually believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, that Jesus not only died in their place, 
right? Not just substitutionary, you know, penal substitutionary atonement that Jesus, to Jesus, the, just a little gospel here at the end, always does us good. Jesus did not only, you know, die as a moral example of sacrificial love for others. Uh, Jesus did do that, right? He says, love has no one greater than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. So in the cross, in Calvary, the, you know, we see at one sense, we can say the moral influence model of the atonement, that Jesus' death was an example of sacrificial love that we should follow. But it was more than that. It was not just an example of sacrificial love, but it was actual payment. That Jesus didn't just die for us to show us sacrificial love, but he actually died in our place. Our sin was imputed to him. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might inherit the righteousness of God. On the cross, the wrath, the white hot wrath of God was poured out on Christ. His wrath for our sin was poured out on Christ. The wages of sin is death. Jesus' death was receiving the wage for our sins. So he died in our place. But it's also important for us to recognize not only his substitutionary death, but his substitutionary life. Jesus did not only die in our place, he lived in our place. That's why through faith, not only has our sin been laid upon him and therefore the wages of our sin, that death, he died in our place that we might live, but also through faith, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. So he didn't just die in our place, paying the wage, receiving the wage for our sin, but he lived in our place so that we might receive the wages for his life. He lived righteously so that uh, so that we would receive all the rewards and benefits and covenant promises of a perfect righteous life. This is the distinction theologically between the passive obedience of Christ in his death and the active obedience of Christ in his life, not only avoiding sin, maintaining sinlessness in a state of integrity, but fulfilling all righteousness. So Jesus didn't just avoid sin, but he did what was righteous. He fulfilled all righteousness, and he did that Again, not just as a moral example that we should follow, but he did it as a substitute. He died in our place and he lived in our place. So for the Christian man, woman, or child, for that matter, speaking to men particularly, for the Christian man who has faith in Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he's no longer guilty. He is righteous. And not only has his sin been done away with and dealt with in finality, but he, he not only has been brought from, from the negative to now a, a neutral position, but he actually has been, his sin has been taken and paid for, but he's also been um, endowed with a presence of righteousness, right? Righteousness has been accredited to his account through faith. And so uh, he needs to see himself uh, the way that God sees him as one who is righteous. So his confidence, and that's the thing, is uh, the confidence doesn't stem from confidence in the flesh. So we, we don't have confident men because we have guilty men. Well, the solution is to have forgiven men, not perfect men, but, but in terms of progressive righteousness, yes, perfect men. Um, but recognizing that, yes, we still sin in various ways. Sin is common to men, but in God's purview, from God's uh, perspective, we are fully, perfectly, completely righteous. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so our confidence stems from him. Uh, 
Um, and so I can stand in the pulpit as, as a sinful man, but a forgiven man who has been clothed with the very righteousness of Christ and say, this is the word of God and it's for you. Right. And so, uh, you know, to say like, well, you know, uh, we like, we are sinners. Absolutely true. Of course I'm a sinner, but Spurgeon wouldn't say that. Spurgeon would say you are sinners. Because he would recognize that in that moment of preaching, it's not about him. He is the mere messenger. He's an errander. Uh, he's, he's reading the king's letter to the people. It's, it's, he's, it's not about him. It's the king. He is merely, the preacher is merely, the, the, he's, he, the preacher is Christ. Not in the objective sense, but he is an ambassador. He's the representation. And, and you look at old theology. You look at every, again, everyone until 15 minutes ago, that's what, that, that's what they believe. That's why, you know, even, you know, preachers would wear clerical robes, right? And we look at that and we say, you know, who, who does he think he is? That's mm-hmm. so, you know, that's high church. That's pompous. That's, and I, I'm not of that tradition. I don't wear robes, but I wear a suit. I'm not wearing a bathing suit. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not flip flops when I'm preaching. And I used to think that, again, that's hypocritical, right? I used to be an Acts 29 pastor, you know, and I'm going to dress casually and I'm not going to stand behind a pulpit. I'm going to have a high top table. I'm going to pace back and forth. Lots of personal examples about my fit. And that's humility and that's holiness and that's, you know, this and that. No, no, it's, um, it's arrogant. It's, it's making everything about you. It's not about you. Uh, when, when I'm in the pulpit as a preacher, I'm, I'm representing Christ. I'm reading uh, God's letter, the king's letter to the king's subjects, to the king's people. It's about the king and his people, the king and his people. Um, I, I, I should blur away. I should be forgotten. I, I should be virtually unnoticeable. Thus saith the king to you, his people, you have broken the covenant, but he is gracious and slow to anger. And once more, we have a covenant renewal ceremony before us today. But do you, the people, take this king to be your king of kings and lord of lords? And he has taken you. He has bought you with a price. You are no longer your own. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Everything that you do, whether you eat or you drink, be to the glory of the king. Like that, that's, that's the way that we preach. That's the way that we speak. And all of that it, yes, it requires confidence, but it's not confidence in the flesh. It's confidence in Christ. It's confidence in the gospel. It's uh, confident men are not perfect men because there's no such thing. If, if a perfect man is required for a confident man, then we won't have any. We'll continue to have cowardly, wimpy, effeminate men. Uh, but we need strong, courageous men. Um, and you don't get them from, uh, from guilty men. Guilty men are cowardly men. Um, but then perfect men, the problem is perfect men don't exist. So the, the only other option, if you don't have perfect men, and if guilty men are cowardly men, then what you need is forgiven men. You need forgiven men who know that it's not about them. Hallelujah. I hope men are listening. Wow. Thank you. That's, yeah. that's the message. That's, that's a message that I think men need to hear because they lack that self-confidence because of their guilt. But, but forgiveness is, is the only way forward to step forth into, into the battle. Thank you for that. Amen. Would you like to speak about your book? I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but a friend sure. of mine recommended it to me. He's looking for a place. He's, he's fighting by fleeing. Let's say, there we go, fight by awesome. flight. Go ahead, speak about it. Yeah, so uh, the little 
synopsis at the back, it says, we often speak of the choice between fight or flight, but what if it were possible to do both? What if collectively we had, speaking of Christians and to a lesser extent conservatives, but primarily Christians, what if collectively we had the power to bring an entire state like California to its knees? Sadly, the only theological category that many Christians possess for such an idea is the category of surrender. But what I'm suggesting is that there is a legitimate third option, the option not of fight or flight, but fight by flight. So the book's been endorsed by Steve Dace from The Blaze and Megan Basham with The Daily Wire, Michael Foster, It's Good to Be a Man, and uh, multiple others. And it's got a short little forward by uh, Doug Wilson. But basically, I, I just I left California and took about seven or eight families with me to plant this new church in Central Texas. And that was the theological reasoning that took me a long time. Um, I started feeling like, man, I don't know if I should be here, um, but I, I, I couldn't leave, I, not with a clear conscience, because I had no way of theologically reconciling a departure from California with anything other than surrender, failure, quitting. Um, and so I, I needed to be able to um, come to a robust biblical theology of fleeing. Uh, which I would argue now, and I outline in the book, that there is a robust biblical theology for fleeing. Fleeing is a biblical idea, and it's it can be done in cowardice, uh, but it can also be done in courage. So that's what the book outlines. Does it mention that Elijah fleed from Jezebel and he found rest in the forest and was able to come back and, and conduct that battle? That's that's a yeah that would be a great example. No, I I don't categorize that one. Um, and in part, I don't categorize that one because I I don't know if that's the best example. In my Probably. opinion, you're right. Like God was merciful, so I would chalk that that's up true. as an example of God's mercy and nourishing him, feeding him, visiting him, and then you know endowing him with courage and sending him back. But I think that uh, that particular instance in the scripture of him fleeing was giving giving credence to. Um, a an unnecessary, ungodly degree of fear. I mean, he had just mm, put true. the prophets of Baal to shame, right? I mean, he had just taken uh, the sword and slit the throats of you know hundreds of wicked men. Uh, he had Jezebel on the ropes, and then all of a sudden he starts to run, and, and the next day and get coward. So, I you know, so that I think that would be an example of you know of him fleeing and then and then actually going back to the fight as a confirmation that he wasn't supposed to flee in the first place. Um, gotcha. But that being said, you know there are multiple other instances of you know I mean if if no better example could be given you know the apostles I mean Jesus sends out the seventy two you know and says the town does not receive you shake the dust off your feet leave that town mm-hmm. uh, Lot is taken out of Sodom and you know and um, and and that's you know he was commanded to flee Sodom, he was tormented in his righteous soul. The scripture says, and eventually, uh, he's not just it's not just permissible, but he's actually commanded by God that he needs to leave. Um, so there's there's multiple I think uh, biblical instances of of godly fleeing uh, that I try to to provide as examples. But the book, just for your listeners, I don't want to. I don't want to give it, you know, more more value than it's worth. Like uh, I don't know if they can see this if they're watching on video, but it's a small book. It's like a hundred pages, um, and so it's you know it's not the most robust book in the world, but uh, because it's really it's a simple concept, uh, just this idea that, um, you know, it's it's the idea of the decisive point. Jim Wilson, Doug Wilson's dad, talking about you know looking for places that are both winnable and strategic. Right? They're significant. We could we could all move to the proverbial Timbuktu tomorrow. 
with a population of 47 people and we could, you know, win it for Christ in a fortnight, you know, and we could also uh, move to Manhattan, New York. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, many guys who have served for decades in Manhattan, New York, uh, have been discipled more by the city than they actually shaped the city themselves. And so uh, there are places that are significant, but not particularly winnable. There are places that are winnable, but not particularly significant. And so the book is arguing for, um, thinking like a general and not just a foot soldier, looking at the big picture with a post-millennial mindset, but recognizing within the post-millennial framework uh, that the church lives in the light of eternity and therefore it can afford to be patient. So my argument is not um, is not that we can't win California and we should let the enemy have it. My argument is that we should leave California, let California for the first time actually have to live with the consequences of its own godless policies by the salt of the earth, no longer propping it up with its tax dollars so that California would defeat itself. And then we can send our children or grandchildren back in to conquer the land. So we'll, we will take California. It's not if, it's just when. And I'm arguing that we could take it faster if we had a momentary and tactical retreat. And during the time of that retreat, we can reinforce other soldiers in the Battle of Bunkers Hill, a place that is actually kind of purple, like Texas, mm. right? Strengthen mm. that which remains and is about to die so we can leave a fight that we're losing. Um, let them defeat themselves. Go to another fight that's, that's in the heat of the battle right now, but still has a chance to win. Win that fight with this generation and then send the next generation back into the other place once the Land has been cleared out a little bit, and uh, and so it's just it's just thinking thinking like a general, thinking strategically, and thinking um, long term, having a five hundred year plan and not just a five year plan. What I really appreciate about everything that you've said is is you're you're couching everything in the language of of spiritual warfare, which I believe is what we're living in. I don't think that's up for debate anymore. I think it's just true. So, how do Christian men fight a spiritual war? I think you provide a lot of wonderful answers to that. Thanks. Thank you so much, Will, for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Pastor Joel. Where would you like to send men and women to find out more about you and what you do? They can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's at right response M. There's not enough room to fit ministry there. So at right response M. Uh, they can also follow us on YouTube. Uh, right Response Ministries on YouTube. They can go to rightresponseministries.com, our website. We also have a free app that they could download uh, that's very user-friendly. And then I would just encourage guys to um, also come in flesh and blood, and I'd love to meet you uh, at one of our conferences. We've got a conference coming up in the fall with uh, Chris Wiley and Jared Longshore on the household and the war for the cosmos. And then we have um, our spring conference is going to be March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd with Douglas Wilson and Brian Sauvey and Joe Boot. And uh, we've got some other guys who are coming to the table. And that conference is uh, called um, Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. And so that'll be in the spring. And so uh, we just had our Theonomy and Postmillennialism conference with James White, Joe Boot, and Dale Partridge. And uh, we had a lot of people come out for that. And so uh, that's, yeah, follow us online, but also if you're able, we, we would love to, uh, to get to meet you in person. And I think it's just right now, it's it, a lot of us are spread out guys who have, you know, uh, hopeful eschatology guys who are, you know, who, um, really want to engage, uh, in the culture war. And, and so a lot of times you get discouraged, you, you feel, um, disheartened when, you know, you're watching podcasts, but there's nobody that you're aware of within a 60 mile radius who thinks the way 
you think. I talk to Christians all the time. Like, I can't find a church. It's been years. There's no church, you know. That and so, um, some of you need to fight by flight, right? So some of you need to geographically move and find a church. Um, but at least at minimum, uh, try you know once or twice a year to go to a conference or something with like-minded people who, uh, who, you know, the, the overarching theme of the conference isn't, uh, we lose down here, um, go to a conference where, where, you know, it's, uh, Hey, uh, we win down here and, and we don't know exactly how or when, and we may take some serious losses. We will along the way, but, um, but, but we can do this by God's grace. And so go and, and get around those people. It's good to just see, you know, this, this last conference, just to see 550 people in a room who think the way that I think, and have been, uh, who are, are on mission and, and, you know, and who have the same convictions. I mean, to, to realize, okay, it's not just bots on Twitter. Like these are real people. They actually exist. It's just, it's encouraging. Yeah. There's no substitute for being face to face and shaking hands and be like, okay, I'm a real person. And these are the things that I believe and you can be around each other. There's no substitute for that because we have such a distributed online church in its own way. Getting together in person is very powerful. Yep. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for this. It's been a a wonderful conversation. I'm very much looking forward to men hearing it. Cool. Thanks, Will. I appreciate it. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.